1: We've got a Super Bowl story of redemption and recovery, one of the most inspiring ones I've ever uh, worked on. Remember Chris Furster, the Miami offensive line coach, uh, who had this video of uh, doing drugs in his office at the team facility a couple years ago? He was forced to resign. Well, for the last couple years, he's been a consultant for the 49ers. He was back at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami for Super Bowl 54 on Sunday. I had a chance to talk one-on-one with Furster. First time he's spoken publicly about the incident. You won't want to miss this story. And the Hall of Fame class of 2020 was introduced Saturday night. Unfortunately, John Lynch was denied in his seventh try as a finalist. We'll tell you why and what that means. And the Tampa Bay Lightning were California dreaming all weekend. They went and won all their games in L.A., Anaheim, and San Jose. They're now tied with the fourth-best record in hockey. We've got all that and more in this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, we're taping this podcast prior to Super Bowl 54 as uh, we knew the game was late. I had other duties after the game, but we'll talk about it, of course, all on Tuesday's podcast. We also thought you'd love to hear this story on Chris Forster because uh, it's really something uh, that you need to uh, listen to and, and read if you get a chance. Uh, I wrote a story about it. You can go to Tampa Bay.com or it's in the Tampa Bay Times. So, uh, Steve, I've been down here now in Miami. Uh Super Bowl Sunday as we do this type podcast. And, um, Uh, it's going to be a great game and we'll we'll talk about the results of course later this week but I got to say that uh, uh, I've enjoyed sort of the access I've I've had sometimes your relationships come back around and and help you gain some access but uh, earlier in the week I was able to have lunch with John Lynch and his his entire front office was down there which was cool Lynch by the way is just killing it as a GM you know I expect him to be back in this game again probably several times in the next few years I mean I really do think they have that kind of potential. And Um, if you
0: missed it, he was on the pod, you heard him on the podcast last week. So you can go ahead and download that and listen back to him and hear his, his words, how things have gone in San Francisco.
1: Absolutely. And you know, people ask all the time too, and we talked about this a little bit, why isn't he the GM of Tampa? It just really wasn't one of the things that, that, uh, presented itself, but this opportunity did. So he took advantage of it, but he's done a great job. And and like I said, I, I think he's, he's going to be, um, Know, really successful as they, as they move forward but i had a chance to uh to sit down with chris firster who i have known you know he was on tony dungy's staff back in 95 when tony got here was coached here for about four or five years i think um and he's had like a 37 38 year coaching career so he's been a lot of places including the 49ers on two other occasions back in um i think it was uh well two two other stints were well, the last one with jim Tom Sulo but Was out of football, obviously, the last uh, two, two and a half years, simply because he he had a problem. And, um, you know, and we many people will remember, they might not know the name Chris Furster, but you might remember the image, a very disturbing video, you know, that was was broadcast everywhere on social media um, by a woman that put it on there to to hurt him. And she was successful. But she also probably probably one of the best things that happened to him was he went and got help. Um, but he's, uh, you know, had gotten into drugs and, and actually had videotaped himself in the office of the Miami Dolphins, um, doing that. And, um, and, and, you know, he had to resign. It was weird because they played a game. This was right after hurricane. Um, was it Irma? Is that the one that was big? Yes. Yeah. I think it was was Hurricane Irma a couple of years ago, swept through, you know, South Florida and and canceled the first week in games for the Dolphins and the Bucks, if you recall that year. And um, so the Dolphins went out to California. I think they were in Oxnard or someplace like they're getting ready to play the Los Angeles Rams in week two. And that's where he met this individual. But uh, uh, they had played, they played a game against Tennessee on a Sunday afternoon in Miami. and They won that game. Uh, and then by midnight that night, the video posted and by daybreak the next morning he had resigned. And by 7 PM on Monday, he was in rehab. <laughs> I mean, It was just, you know, and thankfully he went, you know, that directly to get help um, because in, at, at the encouragement of his wife and and his son, who is sort of in that industry. He does he does work uh, in the drug and alcohol rehab industry. So he knew where to send him. Um, but it, it, it's been, you know, it's been an amazing week and an amazing couple of years for him. Um, you think about something so public, you know, like how do you how do you come back from that? Right. How how does someone in this profession uh, manage to not just put their their job back together and, and you know, find a way there, their career, um, but their life, you know, their marriage, their um, their relationships with their children you know children and all that. He's got three kids. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was just uh, one of the really tough things to sort of to sort of watch. Uh, you know, watch happen to him, and yet uh, he had been very reticent to talk. I mean, I was down here uh, probably since last Monday, and been had been talking to people that know him very well, and um, we were going to do a story either way because I think on on Monday night when they had the Super Bowl Monday night, Kyle Shanahan talked about him. I talked about him uh, to John Lynch he's not a well-known guy this year in the 49ers cause he's a consultant. And that, that means he's mm-hmm. not on the coaching staff. He gets paid. Um, but you know, Chris was really reticent about you know, digging a lot of this back up. Right. I mean, um, these are, these are painful memories. These are scars he's got. And yet I think he felt strongly that it, that, that it might inspire somebody. I mean, I, there's mm-hmm. really no other reason for him to have done this. Steve is that, you know, he trusted me to some degree and, and that, I know Clyde thought it was a good, you know, redemptive story that needed to be told and that this was the week to do it. But I really think that, you know, deep down, he felt like, look, you know, if I can come back from this, other people can get help, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what, you know, it was his his willingness to go to rehab. But it, what struck me about the story was even, you know, he was, what, 45 days into of the 60-day rehab. And he was like, mm-hmm. you know, you, they were telling him, you might need to stay longer.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, because it hadn't it,
0: clicked yet, and then it finally right. did. And right, you know, and he even talks about his family where there's not enough sorries. You, mm. you, you he, he stopped saying sorry. You, you can't. It's, there's only actions, and That's even right. at first, the actions are well. Is he gonna? Is he gonna, is gonna, he gonna go relax. back on that? Is he gonna? Yeah, you know. Is is this just you know saying it or doing it to whatever? And you know, sure. he's, he's had to earn that trust back, and it wasn't it wasn't easy. And his family has you know, taking them back in and he's got a relationship with them again. And and, oh, yeah. and it's a yeah. tremendous story. And, and for those who are struggling with that, there is yeah. help. There is ways to get out of it. And, and I, yep. you know, I, I thought it was a extremely uplifting story of look, people make mistakes. None of us are perfect. No, um, we're all human. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, what do we teach our kids? It's how you get back up when something happens, That's it's right. how you, That's right. how, how you, you know, move going forward. You can't change what mm-hmm. happened in the past. Nope. So how do we, how do we adjust going forward or how do we do going forward? And you know, for what, two years with him now, it's been positive and it's been good, but you know, he mentioned it, it's, it's a, it's a fight every day. It's not, yeah. you know, unfortunately this is not something that you're just, okay, I'm cured or cured is not the right word, but you know, it'll never happen again. You can't ever say that with this.
1: No, right. It's an addiction and he has an addictive personality and and talk about sort of what he found out about himself in rehab, but the first thing he said to me, and I used to, it turned out to be my first quote, he says, uh, I'm at peace. Those are the first three words he said to me. And I thought, wow, you know, that takes a lot for somebody that's been through what you've been through. He goes, now i got to figure this out. You know, i still got to figure this stuff out. He says, you know, how to live right. I've got almost two or three years doing it of just being honest, right? And he said that used to be from the minute I woke up, I was telling lies. Now think about the stress that you put yourself under, right? For years and years, not just the last couple of years or not just before um, the, the videotape or them, I'm talking going way back, he said, really all the way to college almost. there, there were some, some issues that he had within himself, and, and he didn't know how quite why or how to address it, but he didn't know one thing: he was lying to a lot of people, you know, and he was not living as himself. In fact, what was ironic is that, as a football coach, the one place. Where he could be just Chris Furster, football coach, right, was when he walked between those white lines. When he was coaching, when he was on practice field, when he was on the game, there was no cell phones, messages, there was no uh, phone calls, you know, and stressful interruptions, that kind of thing, uh, to try to cover, you know, for his drug use or for his uh, other other relationships or whatever. When he walked onto the field, that's when he was uniquely, as he said, or authentic, authentically. He said, Chris Furster. So you know, from that standpoint, um, you know, he's getting his life back, you know, his, his, his soul back. I mean, he's not pretending to be somebody that he, that he's not. And, and he, and he's living in, you know, he's living in in, in an honest world. So the stress of that alone will change you, right. It'll make you feel better. Um, but also, I mean, he, he still has a ways to go. And, And you mentioned that it is a daily struggle. And that's one thing, you know, after I did an interview, I, I, you know, we, we exchanged a text message or two. And, and you know, he was concerned that that even after talking about it, that people would think he was saying I'm cured. And that is not the case. I mean, as he wanted to emphasize to me, look, you know, yeah, I've done a lot of work, you know, with my family. And yeah, you know, um, my wife and I are in a really good place. But, you know, it's a, it's literally a daily struggle, because that's the way it is with addiction. And you just get up every day. And, Um, you, you try to make it through the day and do the right things. And then you do it again and again and again, you just stack the days. Um, but there are plenty of stories of relapses, you know, as he said, by the grace of God, I haven't had one yet. Hopefully I never do. And he also didn't want, I thought this was interesting. He didn't want to be a distraction. I mean, look, it's Super Bowl week, right? There's enough potential. Um, we're in Miami where we can remember, uh, you know, guys going awry and I'm not talking about him, but. Um, you know the Stanley Wilsons, and uh, you know Cincinnati played here against the 49ers years and years ago, and they found him, uh, you know, blown out of his mind on drugs, and and uh, was unable to play, and it was a it was a bad thing for the Bengals. And you know, you've had Eugene Robinson played a Super Bowl here in Miami, and solicited, uh, you know, uh, a, a undercover cop. Um, so and he ended up playing in a game that they got beat in, but. Uh, so he he didn't want he didn't want to be the story, right? I mean he's a consultant. Um, he's putting his life back together now. He's a big part of the 49 er success. This is the thing that is not to be um, not measured because you know, I talked to Joe Staley, who he, you know he coached in San Francisco the other two times and is now back. And, I mean Staley called him up just the other day, I think it was on Wednesday, and said, Hey, can you go over some of this tape with me? He wanted to look at some offensive line, defensive line tape of the, uh, of the chiefs and uh, some run game stuff. And, and, you know, first year, that's what he does. He does a lot of individual work. Um, he was able to talk to me while they were at practice. Cause he doesn't go to practice and we'll get into what happened, you know, when he was able to go the other day. But uh, you know, I think that, I mean, when he goes, he can't, he doesn't actually coach. I should say he's been there, but he doesn't coach. But I, I just think that he wanted, he sort of, I think it was, he wanted to tell a story, agreed to tell a story, and and he wanted, I think the, the key was is just how much he went through. I mean, we talked about him having to resign, okay, immediately he checks into Hanley, which is an addiction center um, up in West Palm Beach, 60-day evaluation, okay, uh, and it and like you said, for 45 days, he didn't know what the problem was, which we can get into in a minute. They finally figured it out, but then after that, he's 90 days, and as an outpatient, at the Beachcomber uh, Addiction Treatment Facility that's in Delray Beach, which is just up the road here on the uh, on the East Coast. So he was there um, for 90 days. And then finally, mm-hmm. Clyde Christensen, who is a Bucs quarterback's coach, uh, an unbelievable guy that, that was also on Tony Dungy's first staff, and that's how these two guys know each other. And at the time that Chris fell down uh, with the Dolphins, Christensen was the offensive coordinator here. He was the Miami Dolphins coordinator at that time. So they're on the same staff again, right, even after Tampa. And, you know, Chris has been just a a huge supporter of his. Well, back in the day when he got out of the halfway house, he needed a place to live. Christensen and his wife gave him a spare bedroom at their condo out here um, near Miami. And he set up shop there in his room and, and, uh, you know, would sit on the balcony. And as he slowly got worked and started doing things like reports for the draft and things like that for the 49ers, Um, you know, he had a place to stay because he didn't have much money. He didn't have any money. That's the other part of the story. This cost him everything he made financially. And I think for like the last seven years, he was making over seven figures. So you can imagine the amount of expense, you know, and and how much difficulty that that caused him, that caused his family. So for Clyde to open up his house and allow him, you know, to live there until he could get back on his feet. I mean, all this, as Chris told me, he goes, like, I wasn't in charge of any of this. And then that's why he thinks – his faith played a big role because there was a higher power. You know, he was like, you know, I didn't decide where I was going in the rehab. Uh, My son helped me with that. You know, I didn't decide, um, you know, where I was going to live after I got out of the halfway house. Clyde helped me with that. And so every step of the way, he felt there was something, you know, something bigger that was taking place in sort of his uh, road to redemption. Um, So it, it, you know, you, you go through this story and it's really remarkable because you think about a guy that was on top of his profession. I mean, he's regarded as one of the best offensive line coaches in the game. And that's not hyper- hyperbole. He really is. I mean, he's been a big part of what a lot of these teams have done in the run game. It's most of all with Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan was the second guy to call him, I think. The first guy in the coaching profession. And, you know, Chris had worked for Mike Shanahan, Kyle's dad, with Washington Redskins on that staff for four years before he went to Miami and you know they'd gotten to be good friends obviously but for Kyle to call him uh in his darkest hour and you know sort of uh see how he was doing first and foremost he knew he had to go to rehab he knew he had a lot of things to deal with his life but just to kind of be there with him so not a surprise necessarily that it was Kyle who pushed and pushed for for something for this guy to do and he had other people too that helped him he had his his agent, you know, uh, got him some guys to work out in California prior to, uh, you know, prior to the NFL Combine. You know, they do the Combine testing and training and he can do the interviews and could do all this training stuff to get them ready for that. So he, he picked up money here and there. He was even, you know, doing some high school guys at St. Thomas Aquinas um, and working them out. And he called the university, you know, I think uh, some guys from the Miami Dolphins. There's that period. Uh, In pro football, where you go from OTAs and they get about a month off before they start training camp. But guys want to stay in shape. They want to stay sharp. So Furster was able to work with them. And again, paid him a little more money, but really not enough to support him or his family. I mean, he had to really, you know, be creative financially to try to keep the mortgage paid and, you know, those kind of things. And then (laughs) uh, he gets called by George Warhop one day who tells him, hey, why don't you come up here and just kind of hang out at OTAs? Remember, George was the offensive line coach uh, with the Bucs a couple years ago. And so he drives back to Tampa, and while he's there, he gets a phone call. And it's from his wife, and she's not been feeling well. And as if life, you know, you need perspective, well, here it is. Here's Michelle, his wife, calling him to say, I don't feel well. They go to the doctor. Tests reveal she has stage 4 cancer, Steve. I mean, you know, it was, it was peritoneal cancer, which is the, the peritoneum uh, protects all your organs. And there Mm -hmm. was just, you know, full of, of uh, tumors and whatnot. So, so here he is now he has a chance to help her right Uh, after what she's been through. And so he, he he moves into their house that they had built in St. Petersburg, like in 98 and he had not lived there since Oh five, because anytime he would take a job someplace, um, the family would stay in St. Pete after a while. They just decided to, you know, his kids were in high school and stuff. Mm -hmm. So she stayed there He goes, you know, when I walked in that house, I almost didn't recognize it. And he goes, that just shows how little I was present when I was actually there. Right. I was always working, but I also had this other life, you know, that, um, that I was trying to conceal. So I mean, all of that is just, you know, to think, I mean, what in the midst of this, his wife is, is battling for her life. Now, fortunately, She, she made it through all the surgeries and the treatment and she's in, she's in remission. So it's a good ending, right? So far, um, that she was able to beat that. And he said, look, I, he goes, she had a support system. It's not like I, you know, I was there to, you know, to, to do everything for her. He goes, but as much as you got to take care of the house, you know, you got kids, Mm -hmm. um, he was able to help out. So in a way, not working at that time probably helped her, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but that's just, again, sort of building slowly the blocks back together and trying to put your life together. All right, so after that, he's got Shanahan. He's writing reports, and he's doing all that stuff. And, um, you know, he's spending time. That The second year, Shanahan said, hey, why don't you move out here uh, to the West Coast and spend some time closer to the 49ers facility? And so he's able to do that this year, right? And and they they had a week. If you remember, they opened with the Bucks, and then they were playing somebody um, towards the East Coast or central, central part of this, the United States. They stayed in Youngstown for a week. He was with them. And then they went to IMG Academy in Bradenton between games, between Baltimore and New Orleans. So he got to spend that time, you know, with the team around the other coaches. Um, you got to give credit to their offensive line coach, John Benton, who he's known since Colorado State when he first started coaching. Um, you know, most guys in this league, Steve, would be like, Nah, I don't need another offensive line coach hanging around.
0: You know what I mean? Particularly like, one that's viewed as a, one of the best in the game.
1: Yeah. Right. And I mean, so you give Benton credit mm-hmm. um, for that and, and and for allowing him to, you know, to be part of this whole thing. Like I said, Staley, you know, and others were very glad he was around. When you think about the 49ers run game, he had been part of this offense going back to Mike Shanahan. So so Chris understood it from a blocking perspective. And Shanahan does so many things with the zone blocks and the motions and, you know, uh, it, it's not just the, Hey, line up and knock the crap out of the guy in front of you. It's not just man blocking all the time, but they do a lot of creative things and leverages and things like that. And Chris has been a big part of that. So at the end, all, you know, all this is going on and, and you got to, you got to also credit. This was ironic. I'm backing up a little bit here, but when, when Shanahan approached Lynch about hiring him in the first place as a consultant, they they had just gotten rid of Reuben Foster. You know, he was uh, arrested for domestic violence. And so there was a lot of eyeballs on the 49ers, right, and what they were doing. In the meantime, remember, they started 0-9. They went 6-10 and after the trade for Garoppolo. Then the next year, Garoppolo gets hurt. They're 4-12. and And, you know, in Reuben Foster thing happens, and now you're going to bring on Chris Furster. Story broke that, hey, this, they got association with this guy. But, you know, I mean, you give John credit, and the irony is, is that Furster recruited John to Stanford. I mean that's how much the the relationships go back to the 49ers and to and to Lynch and of course Lynch was with Dungy's team so he knew him. Uh, but they had to get the ownership to sign off of it because this is a this is a, a an ownership decision. You got to let Denise DeBartolo York and her husband John decide this. So all this is going on and they bring him out to the West Coast um, and uh, he helps them. They they win the NFC and on the game on the day that they won the NFC championship he watched in, in California, Northern California, from his office. You know, he didn't have a credential. He wanted to be on the field when they won He would let, or, you know, in the locker room. He really felt, you know, they missed part of that. But it's too late to get a credential and try to get down there. So when we get to Miami, uh, Chris tells me, he says, look, I'm riding the bus over just like, you know, I was part, part of the coaching staff. I'm going to get the full process. I'm going to go over there, you know, Super Bowl Sunday, walk into the locker room. But he goes, but that's it. That's why I'm watching the game. we got to watch the game from the locker room because I'm not a coach. Uh, I'm not going to be on the field before the game or, you know, halftime or anything like that. So he goes, but I want to be there. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of it when those guys come in. And so, you know, for him to – and imagine the emotion. I said, what are you going to feel like when you walk into Hard Rock Stadium? He goes, I don't know. I mean, because, you know, this <laughs> – what – there is some serendipity in the fact that his career has come full circle – and this is a guy that's been in the league 37 years, never went to a Super Bowl. 37 years. I mean, you, you think about coaches and players and how many of them get to experience this. It's not as many as you think. You know, uh, I mean, when the Patriots are going every year, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to get here. He even said to me, he goes, look, he goes, I've been around this team. This is a special team, a special group of guys. He goes, if this is what it takes to get to the Super Bowl, I understand why I haven't been there in 37 years. He goes, it's rare he goes, this, this bunch of guys here, because he I've never been around guys like this. So as a team that are so selfless and do anything they, you know, egos put aside all that, that's really what it takes to win in the league. So we go to, uh, this week and there was a day where, uh, Chris went out to practice, uh, and the, the guys were kind of ribbing him. They're like, Oh, look, they let you out of your cage. It was true in so many ways. Um, but Chris, uh, you know, towards the end of practice, and he said, you know, it felt great to be just to be out there with the team and it's been a long time since I've done that. But they're lining up with the risers and getting on the risers. They take up an official team picture out right, of both teams, the AFC and the AFC championships um, before the Super Bowl. And this is this is, you know, this is your historic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of picture. And John stops the process, Lynch, and says, hey, well, Chris, come on. You're part of this. Come on. And he makes him part of the picture. And I'm telling you, when he told me this, the only time he was great during this whole hour and a half that I talked to him, the only time that he got really emotional was when he talked about being asked to do that and and, and feel a part of that and being asked to be part of that Super Bowl picture. It's, it's an emotional – I'm telling you, you got to go read this story. It's an emotional story. Um, he couldn't have been more honest. I hope people receive it the way it was intended because it's it's a redemptive story. He had no reason to really – Sure, is there is there some measure of, hey, you know, I'm doing better to the rest of the NFL? I suppose. But that really wasn't his motivation. I really think that he just felt, you know what, I've been to the darkest place you can go. And I've had to, you know, build relationships with my family, with my wife. Uh, how, how more public can this have been, right? How more embarrassing could this have been? And yet, it's probably saved his life. I think he wants people to know that no matter – like you said earlier, no matter what you're going through, um, get help, you know, talk to people, go in a program. Nothing's ever too embarrassing, you know, to, to repair sort of the relationships and the things that you think you have lost. So I don't know. I was inspired by him, uh, by talking to him and uh, the feedback from the story has been really good. I think people, you know, people have a different perspective of, of that disease. Um, and, uh, and it is a disease an addiction that he had and his is kind of a compulsive addiction where um you know you do things for temporary pleasure but you just you know don't understand why you do them but then you become addicted to them you know and um like any other addiction so at any rate i uh, hope you get a chance to read it and uh, i hope you i hope you're moved the way i was and just in sort of writing it and talking to him about it because i thought it was a, I thought it was a worthwhile worthwhile story and i was glad that uh,
0: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
1: Okay, so we also had on Saturday, the Hall of Fame class of 2020 was introduced. And unfortunately, for the seventh straight year as a finalist in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, John Lynch was shut out. And not totally unexpected because I'm, I'm pretty close to the people in that room. I know Eric pre- presents him. Um, I was in there last year as an alternate uh, voter, understood a little bit more about the process now. Unfortunately, there's a lot of what we call, I would call, slotting that goes on. I mean, you look at the 15 finalists and you look at the class, and, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, for example, there was a logjam of offensive linemen. Really, Hall of Fame. First of all, if you make the finalists of the Hall of Fame, chances are you're getting in. If you're there more than one year and you don't get in, you're really going to get in. If you're there as long as John is, the odds are 90 something percent. But he's still not a Hall of Famer. And, you know, you know, a year ago it was Kevin Mowai. They got rid of one offensive lineman and went through there. And then Hutchinson, Steve Hutchinson from the Vikings this year, made it through. I suspect you'll see Tony Baselli, And there's a couple other offensive linemen that will be coming up. Um, I don't have any problem with the guys they put in. I mean, I, I thought Adrian James should have been in last year or before. He's certainly a Hall of Famer. The guy that John was battling, quite frankly, was Steve Atwater. And, and Steve Atwater is an older player. Their numbers and their accomplishments are almost identical. I mean, to the letter. Big safeties, intimidating guys. Um, the difference is, uh, you know, that John wasn't an all-decade player because he kind of played in between decades, 95 to, you know, to the 05, where his highlights uh, sort of his career. But, you know, Atwater was running out of time. He was going to end up in a seniors category if he didn't get in because he retired before John. And so I think that was probably ultimately why Atwater made it. We knew Troy Palomalo was going to be a first ballot guy. So, yeah, I mean, they're not going to put
0: three safeties in one class. No,
1: no chance. And so you were battling. Now, Palomalo this year was the only first ballot guy I saw. You know, I knew that I didn't think anybody else would be that was coming available. Um, The problem is next year you got two for sure and maybe three, but you've got Peyton Manning, and I I would think that uh, Charles, is it Charles Woodson?
0: Charles Woodson, yeah, and that's a defensive back going in, so now you're talking more than one defensive back for Lynch to get in.
1: Right, exactly. Calvin Johnson's
0: also a first ballot next year, or I mean on the ballot for the first time next year, and so is Jared Allen.
1: And those two will get consideration for first. I don't think they'll make it, just kind of knowing what I know. I don't think they'll be first ballot guys. Maybe Johnson, maybe Allen. I mean, Allen had huge numbers. But, you know, they went for years without any safeties. And now, you know, you have centennial class members like Bobby Dillon and Cliff Harris and Donnie Shell. They all got in. Then a couple of years ago, you know, you got Ed Reed and Johnny Robinson. So there's been a ton of safeties. I'm afraid John might get squeezed. Now, next year, the Super Bowl is in Tampa. And writers love a good story. We love a good story. I think it would have been a good story if he made it and then won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, whatever. Lost the Super Bowl or whatever the case may be. But the point is, for John who went to the Super Bowl in 2002 in his hometown of San Diego, right? He has, his timing is pretty good of his. There would be something if he could uh, make the Hall of Fame while it's while the Super Bowl's in Tampa. That would be sort of apropos as well. And and I think he was close. From what I hear from voters, it wasn't that big of a gap between him and Atwater, to the point where if he makes it in the room an eighth time and the Super Bowl's in Tampa, I pray that that uh, this that'll be his year. But... We'll have to see. There's no guarantees in life and certainly not none in the Super Bowl. Um, but that's that's sort of why he got squeezed. Me, uh, let's see, we had other things going on in the weekend. How about the Tampa Bay Lightning? Goodness gracious, I thought this team was struggling. And then you look up, is this true you told me this? And I put it in the open. Fourth best record in hockey.
0: Yeah, they're tied with the Penguins, or the Penguins are going to play this afternoon, so they they could uh, pull ahead of. Uh, they're playing the Capitals, but sure. they're six. what I think they're six points behind the Capitals, or eight points, something like that, That's incredible. for the top record in hockey. Um, you know, they're only five points behind Boston with the game in hand. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean they're they're fifteen two and one in their last eighteen games now. Wow.
1: That's smoking hot. Is that's about as hot as they got last year, right? A I mean of game winning streaks I think last year. Yeah,
0: they I think that what they had a 10 game win streak last year because they had one this year yeah, as well. That's um, right. That's they, right. They had like three or four seven game win streaks last year, but yeah, I mean this is
1: Yeah.
0: They're they're quite toasty. They got a shutout for Curtis McElhaney, who was you nice. know, they've admitted early in the year they didn't play very well in front of him. Um they've right. been playing better of late and and you know, uh, I thought Look, the Lightning are playing well right now. I, I don't mm-hmm. know I don't know if this week in California they've played as well as they were going into the break, but they're still playing very well. Um, against right. San Jose on Saturday night, th- the lightning control play for most of the game. The second period, San Jose did have a pushback, and, and McLean was forced to make some tough saves. But for the most part, everything they've talked about since training camp, of playing wow. a different style of hockey, more responsible, more defensive, not relying on that offense. I mean, here's, right. here's the big thing. In the last, I, I don't whatever, ten games, whatever else, they're like one for twenty-five on the power play, and mm. they're winning. They don't have to win. They're, the offense isn't what's propelling their wins. It's the way they're playing defensively. It's the way they're they're getting back. Mikhail Sergachev has been playing wonderfully of late. I mean, some of the plays he makes coming back on defense when, with rushes and things like that. You know, he's he's this year he has taken that defensive side of his game to another level he's always had the offensive skills um but everything they've talked about all season for the last month to they've been doing and and it shows and and look they're getting points and all of a sudden now they're one of the best teams in hockey
1: just right
0: where we thought they'd be
1: it's it's where they needed to be and you know who knows how high their seed ends up ultimately i don't think they're gonna win the president's cup which might be a good thing um but this is Look, a lot of it is expected because of their talent and Julian Breezeball. I give Cooper credit. You know, nobody panicked in that organization. It did not start well, but this team had to find its own way. Every year we talk about this. Every year is different. And quite frankly, and Tom Jones talked about this, that he thought there'd be a hangover on this team until Christmas. And it was before Christmas they got really hot, but not much before. And so, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you start to see sort of, you know, what are they twenty probably about 25, 26 games away now from the end of the season, I would imagine. Yeah, we're, we're, we're close 20, to thirty games. Yeah, right around there. Close to thirty. So I mean you can kind of begin to see where where the playoffs begin and um and I think that helps them. But yeah, credit credit those guys for you know for putting it all together because uh there were some dark days early on that it didn't really look like it. So yes,
0: Damkos is playing very well. He's heated up nicely um, you know, Kucherov's got about the same amount of goals as he had last year at this point. He just doesn't have the same assist, but he's still playing well. Uh, Anthony Sorelli mm-hmm. has just been incredible as well. Another level. Yeah, um, another know, level. He's almost become the – I don't want to say it because it's not taking away from Braden Point, but he's become kind of what Braden Point's been the last year or two because Point's been moved right. up to that top line now. He's playing with Stamkos and Kucherov, and his role's different on the team. Right, Sorelli um, is now kind of that engine that's playing more of the defensive shutdown line. He's on the penalty kill. You know, he's just kind of, you know, forcing the action and driving the game. And it's been, you know, fun to watch him grow, too. And like I said, it's not replacing Point because it's just Point's role is very different on the team now.
1: Right. No, they got depth and they got, and you know, Kalorn's had a great year and kind of that grinder has, you know, gotten his goals up high above 20. So, yeah, I, I think it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal stretch for them. Well, we'll follow the Lightning as uh, they come home and host Vegas on Tuesday night, see if they can keep their streak alive there. Also, boy, not long. Pitchers and catchers report in just 10 days. So we got lots of race baseball coming up. Of course, we'll recap the Super Bowl as well on tomorrow's podcast. Hope you enjoyed uh, the story. Hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl as well. For Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody.